the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. And of course, on the phone is my co-host, Alan Niven. Bonjour, Monsieur Alain. How are you? Uh, very good. How are you today? Good, good. And... Uh, my guests today, of course, include from TNT singer Tony Harnell. He is back with a new album called, well, in fact, the album is called Dysphoria, and the band is Starbreaker. And, of course, Starbreaker have put out a few albums in the past, but they are back with a new album, which is available now. But before that, I have from the band Last in Line, the one, the only, Vivian Campbell, and he is also, well, you know, part of Def Leppard and Shadow King with Lou Graham. And uh, you know what, Alan, how about if we make uh, Vivian a, a co-host as well? Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, come, with your, come with your punchline here, Mitch. I know you've been working on this joke all day. Fucking hell. But deliver, me, deliver me the punchline here. No, we can't have Vivian, but who might we be able to have? See? It is so great when this stuff is scripted. No, I'm kidding. All right, since we can't have Vivian as both co-host and host, how about a significant replacement for him? Any ideas? Uh, I try not to have any idea about anything at all because I, it gives me headaches. Oh, my on Lord. Sunday morning. But on the other hand, if you were to suggest Steve Brown, I would say you were a genius. See? And see, by the way, this is why we do a rock podcast and we're not on Comedy Central. I am not hosting the Daily Show for a very, very specific reason, and that is it. Uh, Steve Brown is on the line. Bonjour, Monsieur Steve Brown. How are you? I'm very well. Hello, Mitch, and hello, Alan. It is an honor and a privilege to be back on your wonderful podcast that I love so much. Yes, it, it is a rock podcast, not a comedy podcast. But you see, I worked that up all day, but he didn't want to go for it. But, uh, messieurs, you know each other from way, way back in the day, uh, going back to the early 90s. Trickster and Great White opened up for the greatest band on earth, Kiss. And, of course, Alan learned a lot of his tricks watching Kiss every night from the side of the stage. Correct? Uh, yeah, well, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if that, that, that part of the story is true. But, yeah, Alan and I know each other from, first off, the first great tour that we did together was the Scorpions Crazy World Tour 1991. It was Scorpions, Trickster, and Great White, and a uh, very, very successful tour. And, uh, and then, again, we, did, we worked together in, in 92 on the Kiss Revenge Tour. I gotta say that um, that Scorpions tour had a had a couple of really really good moments in it. Um, it also had a, a bad one because uh, uh, if you remember, we took a, a week break after Miami, and Michael and I went into the studio to uh, dust up some live live tracks. And Kendall was with us, and he went home saying he wasn't feeling very good. The next time I saw Kendall, he was in the ICU because his esophagus had ruptured from uh, drinking too much Budweiser. And we had to get uh, 
a guest guitarist to come out and, and keep us going and limp through the rest of the tour. But um, up until Miami, that was, from Great White point of view, it was a, it was a, a lot of fun and some really good nights. Remind yeah. me, who, who was the guest guitarist? I'm thinking Al Petrelli. Yes, yes, it was Al Petrelli. Right? My buddy, Al Petrelli. Yeah. Yeah, am I right? Yeah, and doesn't, doesn't Al do um, uh, Christmas things with um, uh, Mannheim? <laughs> yeah, TSO, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, yes. Al, yes. Al Petrelli is one, uh, one of the original yeah. TSO guys. And just uh, quickly, speaking of Crazy World, of course, uh, some of the songs were co-written with uh, Brian Adam collaborator Jim Valance, and Jim will be on the show next week, and yes, the interview's already done, and we did speak about writing for the Scorpions and all of that stuff, and I just will quickly add in that uh, earlier, or at the end of January, so last week, I had a chance to see Brian Adams in concert in Montreal. His new album is coming out in March called Shine Light, and it was absolutely spectacular. He did 26 songs in English and two songs that he sang fully in French, songs of his that he translated into French and sang them entirely from start to finish in French. So 28 songs uh, in all and just incredibly paced and incredibly well put together. Are, are either of you Brian Adams fans or is that a Canadian thing? Steve? No, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge Brian Adams fan. Been since since the you know the early I think before Reckless. I forget what the name of the record is, but Cuts Like a Knife. I remember Cuts Like a Knife, TV dude. Yeah, getting getting that record and just oh my god, and loved his voice. And uh, and uh, one other thing that I always loved about Brian Adams was he great songs, and I, I was a big avid reader of the credits. And so with Brian Adams, I learned about Jim Valance, of course, great you know Brian's co-writer and then also the great sounding records because he had one of the best mixers in the business bob clear mountain mixing his records and i would always listen to his records and go man this is the production just it's like perfect and it was and what a career he's had it is and i'll tell you yesterday or not yesterday last week when i was at the show uh there was a radio station here uh, beat 92 one of the guys was interviewing brian and i was listening in uh, as they were doing it there. And, and the guy said, hey, you've worked with Bob Clearmountain and Mutt Lang on Waking Up the Neighbors or one of your albums. And Brian just looked at, at, at Jeremy, the guy, and said, you mean the A-team worked on it? And it's like, yeah, that, that's the A-team. Bob, Bob and Mutt, yeah, that's, that's as good as it gets, right? Right, right Alan, that's, that's, when you look back at who's ever, everybody that's out there, those, those are some of, two of the best. Oh, absolutely. It, you can't, quibble with the absolute result of sales um, but I might have a slightly different perspective um, being a, a bit of a you know a producer myself in that when and I, I met Matt in the very very early days when uh, if I remember correctly he was doing an album with a band called the Motors on Virgin and um, I tend to look at Mutt and think of him in an artistic way, in that he constructs these amazing sonic confections, the most incredible ear candies. And I kind of look at that and go, you know, you could almost put anybody into that, and it's going to work. And it seems to be as much about Mutt, if not a little bit more about Mutt, than actually the artist you put in there. Um, with Bob Clearmountain, 
the, the, he had a gift of both precision and warmth. Uh, very clear mixes, really good space and dynamics in air. Um, but he still kept a warmth, warmth in those mixes. Um, and I think Bob might have been, as a producer, slightly more artist-friendly in that I think that uh, Bob might have brought more out of the artist than put, rather than putting more clear mountain into the fine, final result. Um, I, th I think the best producers are those who can see the very best in the person they're working with and whether that person themselves can see it or not, get it out of them. Yeah, and 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 just to, to that point, I've always felt the same way of, of Bob Ezrin. I've always felt that Bob Ezrin has made a whole bunch of different solo albums and then just had people like Kiss and Alice Cooper sing them for him, um, <laughs> which is perhaps nasty to say, but I've, I've always felt he's just made Bob Ezrin albums because he brings in all the ghost musicians. Anyway, let's get on to what we're yeah, well, yeah. The, the, you know, you, yes, I mean, a, a strong producer is going to uh, always have their fingerprint. I suppose. I mean, in, in, in my own case, my my wife turned around to me when I brought home the Razor record and said, "Oh, there's your new Great White." Um, you know, which made me go and sit down in the corner and mope for a little bit and go, "Really." And then I went, well, I suppose so. You know, there are certain things that that work for me and that I look for in a song. And I suppose that I make sure that they're there. Yes. And uh, speaking of something that works for me, it is the uh, new Last in Line album called Two. It'll be out February 22nd on Frontiers. I've had a chance to hear it. It is absolutely phenomenal. And it is produced by Foreigner Dawkins bassist, Jeff Pilson, and whenever Jeff touches something, you know that there is quality involved. Um, Alan, I, I'm I'm sure you haven't heard it yet, but Steve, I know you're friendly with the with the Def Leppard camp. Have you heard any of the mixes or any of the songs? Has Has Vivian or or anybody played it for you? Yeah, yeah, he, uh, I, yeah. I've heard I've heard the new uh, Last in Line, and I think it's phenomenal. You know, I love I love the stuff, and what's what's great about Last in Line, they're all friends of mine. You know, I, I've known Andy Freeman for and probably 25, 30 years. He's an East Coast guy. Grew up probably about a half hour from us in upstate New York, and for one of the best singers out there, and just a great guy all around. And and Vinny and Vinny, of course, on drums. You know, I mean the the classic, um, you know, Viv and, and Vinny together were you know classic Dio, and I saw them when I was a little kid, you know, heroes of mine. And I got to work with both of them and friend, you know, I consider Viv and Vinny friends of mine as well as Andrew. So great band. I think the record's awesome and uh, very happy for them. Yeah, and, and you and I got to see them last year in 2018 at the M3 Festival. And uh, did you actually go out in the audience and watch any of the Last in Line performance? Because I made a point to go see it and it was very tight. I mean, it was phenomenal. They, they, their songs that were on the album got delivered in a more believable, better way. And the Dio stuff they represented, it just sounded right. I mean, you can't replace Ronnie's voice. We know that, but they certainly did the songs proud. 
Oh, they were they were great. Yeah, I mean, I was I was on the stage and just the energy and just watching the interaction between Vinny, Viv, and Phil on bass and and uh, yeah, they were they were de- they destroyed it and they were crushing and you know like a lot of good, real you know and I think I've heard you guys and Alan uh, especially de- de- describe I think on the last one of the podcasts I was listening to describing how a lot of people sometimes when you hear a record and you hear this great band and you go wow this is awesome and then you go see them live and they're not that good and you go oh now i get it but last in line i think is one of those great you know it's a real band and when they play live they're actually their their stuff sounds better than it does on the cd and that's uh you know that's a testament to them yeah it really is uh alan just real quick uh we have of course touched upon replacement guitarists when you replaced Kendall with Petrelli back in the day. What was the process? Was it really, we have a friend, let's give him a call, or did management impose it? I mean, what what was sort of the process to bring him in? Uh, well, the process is probably best described as desperation. Um, it, when something like that happens, it's definitely a, a pardon the French, what the fuck do we do now moment. Um, yeah. And it was Petrelli was actually a suggestion of um, an employee of mine called Doug Goldstein, and I got on the phone with Al Petrelli, and this will probably make Steve smile. But I, I said to Al, I said, "How soon could you learn the material?" He said, "I'll have it down by the time I'm off the plane," which was absolutely music to my ears and just what I wanted to hear. And Al did a, a, a sterling job of trying to fill in, but he still didn't have it down by the time Kendall had, came back. <laughs> that's that's funny. And and Steve, let me ask you about that, because when you replaced Viv, it, you know, when you replaced Phil Collin, it was very different. They said, hey, he's already replaced Viv, let's give him a call. And right now you're going to go step in and do some shows with Dennis DeYoung. What's your process to get sort of up to speed, whether it's for Dennis DeYoung or for foreign, uh, not foreigner, um, Def Leppard? How do you approach it? Well, it, yeah, of course, again, it's, you know, it's one of those situations where every situation is different. The first time I played with Vivian, uh, filled in for Vivian with Def Leppard, there was a, there was a ton of preparation and, and time for me to get ready. They sent me a, a hard drive with a, a lot, all the songs recorded live in Pro Tools, so I was able to solo everything and really spend the time and prepare. I was over-prepared to the point where, you know, I, I had... I was doing things that the band doesn't even do and, you know, realizing that, you know, Phil and Vivian don't play the intro to photograph right. <laughs> and I, and when I first started doing the shows, I was, I was asking Joe about, Hey, can I do this background part, you know, background vocal part that you guys don't do? It's one of the mutt things. And that was always the joke. You know, Joe would always say, Joe Elliott would always say, Oh, Steve knows all, he knows all the mutt bits and stuff like that. And, uh, but the process with that, yeah, that was, that was that situation. And everything is different. And I, and, and again, for somebody like Al Petrelli, when you get that call to step in last minute, and that happened to me, um, uh, eight months ago with, with Def Leppard again. And this time I had to, uh, I had to save the day and, and take care of my friends and help out my brother, Phil Collin. And, uh, and that was much different because, 
I knew the songs, but I had to I had to do all the other parts, the other guitar parts, more of the lead stuff. Thankfully, and I've said this many times, you know, it it always helps when the band you're filling in or helping out are one of your favorite bands and a band that was kind of your blueprint for your career. So I knew all the Def Leppard stuff. I know the stuff so well. And uh, so it was easy, but yeah, the process is you just got to go, you got to go and the show must go on. And, you know, it's funny to hear that Al wasn't, uh, didn't have it all down. And, uh, but you know what, The, the, the show has to go on and, you know, and that's what I did. And, you know, and again, I'm filling in for Dennis DeYoung and, and taking care of his guitar player, Jimmy, who has a serious health issue and um i have i i sit in my studio and just play through the songs and chart out things and make as much notes as i can and uh, and just do you know try to represent the the artist and the original artist the stick stuff and the dennis de young stuff as best as i can while also throwing in my little my little bit of my little uh little uh personality uh, fire and flair right. yeah steve steve you just stepped right into my head because the question I wanted to ask you was, do you get a little bit of latitude to be in the moment and be yourself? Yeah, always, because, you know, and I, I think that's that's a key thing, because I think, as you know, Alan, any musician, and you see this with a lot of tribute bands, and and you see some replacement people, they try to do everything note for note, and try to do it exactly without putting any of, the, any of their personality into it, or any of their originality into the music, and it sounds horrible, because guitar players, in general, I find that everybody has a unique style. So when you try to copy something without putting your own fluidity into it and your own sort of your own language, it sounds horrible. So yeah, there's always a little bit of that. And you could see that. I think if anybody watched any of the videos with me, especially doing Phil Collins parts, you know, of course I honor, you know, the the original and the, the classic lines, but there's always something that I'm going to put in and uh, to make to make it me and and it's not to take away from anything but you know watch a video of me playing photograph or watch a video of me playing one of the stick songs you know it's it, it's definitely definitely the true music is there but then it has my personality and my style in it because that's that's just the way i am yeah and, and otherwise it sort of sounds mechanical it, it sounds very sterile i guess is the word i'm looking for and, and just speaking of phil collin by the way have you ever noticed when he sings and he does a song like Miss You in a Heartbeat, he has a little bit of that Brian Adams inflection? Oh, without question. I mean, that was always, well, a couple of years ago, Brian Adams and Def Leppard toured together, and I went to a bunch of shows, and I told, I told Phil, I said, when, when are you going to go out and sing one of the songs for, you know, Brian, because he's got that, you know, you know that, that he's totally got that voice, you know? Got my first real six string, brought it at the five and time. You know, he can, he can sing like that, and that's part of, and that also, a lot of that comes, a lot of Phil's vocal uh, style comes from Mutt Lang, you know, because Mutt was the guy who sang most of those background vocals on the records. A lot of people don't know that, but that's mostly Mutt. And, uh, and Brian, certainly, and you can hear on the Brian Adams records, you can hear Mutt all over that, but that airy voice. But that's also another reason, the first reason, I think I've said this numerous times, and you know this, Mitch, that the, the reason that I got the Def Leppard gig was because that I can sing just like that as well. And that was the yep. most important thing to Def Leppard, the vocals. 
Oh, and absolutely. And and as a fan, it's the most important thing. It's, it's those lush vocals that attracts you to the band. Um, but let us get over to uh, Vivian Campbell. Of course, new album, Last in Line 2, comes out on February 22nd. And uh, we shall return with uh, Steve Brown and Alan Niven. But first, here is the one, the only, Vivian Campbell. We are speaking with a guitarist. Uh, guitarist? What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to invent new words. On three, two, one. We are speaking with guitarist Vivian Campbell, of course, of Def Leppard, but of Last in Line. First album came out a couple of years back called Heavy Crown. They are back this February with two, and I've had a chance to hear it. It is absolutely spectacular. Just a a great follow-up album. Uh, So kudos to the band and, of course, producer... Uh, Jeff Pilson, together you you guys have got a team. I mean, it it is working. Uh, so so just talk to me yeah. about the album, Viv. Yeah, it, it, it was great working with Jeff again, and um, it really does work. I mean, it's a really good chemistry that we have with him. Uh, I, I said that the band was a little bit more involved in the production of this record uh, together with Jeff, uh, especially Andrew, Andrew Freeman. Um, but uh, we uh, we cobbled it together. You know, over a series of months, uh, again, it was sort of like like the Heavy Crown album, the first album. It was it was done piecemeal because of my schedule with Def Leppard mostly, and Jeff's schedule with Farner. Uh, but <laughs> it came out great. We're really, really, really pleased with it. And you know, uh, I know that uh, calling the album two is by no means original or the most inventive or creative. But um, it, to me, it really does sound like a band's second album, so I, I thought that that was, that was reason enough to do that. Uh, also, you know, the, the thing is, years ago when, when Vinny and Jimmy Bean and Andy and myself started the project, you know, I decided to call it Last in Line because it was just supposed to be a little fun band playing around L.A., doing uh, versions of the, the early Dio music that we wrote and recorded with Ronnie. But, you know, over the years, it, it grew and took on a life of its own. And, and had I known back then that it was going to be a band writing and recording and releasing original music, uh, I would have given a lot more thought to the name and not just gone with Last in Line. You know, so there's a certain amount of confusion that I think still exists over the fact that the band is named after the second Dio album. You know, so I... I if you bear with me on this, I, I kind of wanted to condense it. I wanted the artwork to look like Last in Line 2, or more specifically, L-I-L 2, you know, so that maybe in, in the hope that in the, the months and years to come that, that people might recognize the symbol L-I-L and then kind of refer to the band a bit more that way as opposed to Last in Line and therefore, you know, clear up some of the some of the slight confusion that exists around it in some people's minds. So the, the one thing I took from it, the album coming uh, being called two, other than just it's album number two, is that it's almost a second coming sort of to, to, to tack on to what you were saying, because it did start off as this fun band at, you know, not to say a cover band. And then it turned into this other project. I saw you at M3 last year and it was, I mean, just spectacular. And the performance was spectacular. But now that you're into the second album of original material, what does that mean for the live shows? Do you, do you sort of de-emphasize the Dio material, or is it still all one sort of family where we're going to do the original stuff, but you'll still hear that Dio classic that, that you want to hear? Well, yes and no. I mean, the origins of the band uh, obviously you know, came from the original Dio band, and it would be 
foolish of us not to recognize that heritage. Um, but we'll certainly be able to play less deal material now that we've got two albums of original material to draw from. I mean, I, I remember, you know, uh, on the Holy Diver tour in 1983, uh, there were only nine songs on the Holy Diver album. So when we first went out promoting that album as this new band deal, you know, we uh, we seriously had to, to pad out the set. So we were doing Black Sabbath songs and we were doing Rainbow songs, you know, um, songs from Ronnie's past. So, uh, and then, obviously, by the second Dio tour, uh, coincidentally, the Last in Line tour, you know, we we dropped an awful lot of the, the, the Sabbath and the Rainbow material, and we were playing almost, I'd say, probably about uh, 85 or 90% of original Dio music at the time. So so I would imagine the same would, would, would be true of, of Last in Line. When we go out here, we're excited about the fact that we now can draw on, on our own catalogue a little bit more, but it would be reckless and, and foolish of us to, to not play any deal songs. Plus, you know, it, it's something that we are very, very proud of. I mean, you know, Vinny and I are the last two living members of the original band. And, and you know, we I've had a very troubled history with with the Dio catalog. I think that's been well documented. But, you know, in recent years, with the passage of time and whatnot, I, I've come to look at it in a very, very different way. And I'm immensely proud of what I did and what, what I did with Vinny and what we did with Jimmy and Ronnie. And you bet we're going to be still playing some of those songs, you know? Yeah, and that's great. So um, in, in terms of we, we, we talked about how it was sort of this fun pickup band and now you've, you're two albums in. What is sort of the future of the band? Is this something that you say, okay, now we have LIL and it is something where we want to make album three, four, five, or is it still sort of just a side project that will be tended to when time permits? Well, I mean, Def Leppard is my priority, obviously, but, you know, it, it, Last in Line or LIL, as we can refer to it, hopefully, um, it's a very, very, very serious side project. I mean, it's about as serious as any side project can get. Uh, you know, I, I finished with Leopard after, gosh, it was like an eight, eight and a half month world tour. We just finished the week before Christmas. Um, and I start rehearsals. Um, well, actually, by the time this comes out, I've already been rehearsing and we'll have done shows. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's ongoing. It, it's very, very, very serious. And uh, I, I'm putting as much time as I, as I have literally into this band. I really, really, really want this band to to be viewed as a very serious project and and i think it deserves that attention you know we've all four of us put an awful lot of work into it and then before jimmy passed away you know it was it was something that, that jimmy was really really proud of and really invested in and you know it, it's it's um it's not just a little side band that goes off and plays shows at the weekend and, and, and it shouldn't be. Now, Now you, of course, also have the River Dogs. So is that another project that you tend to, and you've got sort of three balls juggling at the same time? Or does, does the, the River Dogs sort of become, okay, listen, I've got Last in Line, I've got Def Leppard, I, I just don't... How does River Dogs fit into the whole Vivian plan? Well... In short, it, it doesn't match. I mean, there's not enough hours in the day and there's not enough days in the week. You know, I, I kind of got, got talked into doing that and I'm glad I did. I mean, I, I really enjoyed making that record and, and it's, you know, it, it's a great pleasure to work with, with, with Mark and with Nick and, and Rob Lamoth in particular. You know, Rob is, as you know, just uh, an unsung hero. I mean, an immense talent and 
um, it was great to make that record. It really, really was. But it, it was a very quick uh, exercise. And, and when we'd done the record, I, I said to the guys, okay, look, I can't tour. I just, I, I cannot do that. I'm, I'm touring with Leopard. I'm writing and recording and touring with, with Last in Line. I don't have time for it. And I eventually got talked into doing a handful of shows last December. But that's absolutely it, you know. There's... Like I said, there's not enough hours in the day. And it's not from a lack of desire. I mean, I certainly love to do it, but I just, you know, there, there's only so many plates you can spin at once. Yeah, I know. know. Like I said, I really, I really want to give um, uh, Last in Line as much of my time as I can when I'm not with Def Leppard. And, and that's really a, a big focal point for me. Yeah, and, and that is, I can't wait. I mean, like I said, I saw you at M3. It was great. out. All right, let me let me ask you quickly about Andrew Friedman uh, Freeman as as a singer because you have worked with some of the greatest singers in rock history, not just in the genre, but you, you look at David Coverdale, you look at Ronnie James Dio, Lou Graham, Joe Elliott. I mean, not a single slouch in the bunch. Um, talk to me a little bit about Andrew and what he brings to the to the table as a vocalist, and then maybe we can have some comments on some of the other guys because. You have had a storied career. I mean, it is a fairy tale, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I've been really, really fortunate in my career that I've, I've gotten to work with, as you mentioned, all these great, great singers. Um, and it, it's been uh, a real gift to, for me. And, and not only that I get to work with them, but I've gotten to learn a lot from them, too, because I've, I really, I've, I've worked on my own voice for many, many years. And, and that's uh, probably the most challenging aspect about being in Def Leppard is, is the vocal aspect of it. And, and I, I owe a lot of that to um, the tips I got uh, directly or indirectly from all those great singers that you mentioned that I work with. Um, now, Andrew is um, probably one of the strongest voices that I've worked with in terms of just being robust and, and brash and just out there and, and really, really, really roadworthy. Because when, when we do shows with Last in Line, there's there's not a lot of luxury, you know. We're we're doing these long drives between shows, playing club shows and small theaters, uh, doing four, five, even six shows in a row. And a lot of singers couldn't couldn't stick that pace. Andrew is just really, really, really strong and really robust. And when when he first came in and, and sang with with Vinny and Jimmy and myself back in like I think it was the middle of 2011 when we first started jamming and this whole idea came about. Uh, when Andrew came in, I was really taken back. The very, very first thing I noticed about him was just the absolute balls that he has in his voice, the strength that he has, because you really need to be a strong presence to be able to sing on top of that that energy and that level of volume that, that Jimmy, Ben, and Vinny Apathy and myself put out. You know, it was just... Uh, it was really an eye-opener to me when Andy walked into the room. And, and of course, you know, he... It's always going to be tough singing someone else's songs and, and possibly uh, the toughest of all to try and step on stage and, and to, to do justice to our, our Ronnie Dio and, and, and the songs that Ronnie wrote. Um, so, you know, I, I really feel for Andy when he's out there doing it, but, but he's, he's confident enough where he can put his own slant on it where he's not trying to be Ronnie. And, and that was also one of the things that really, really impressed me when I first heard him sing, is that, that he's, he's got this natural ability to interpret the music, you know? Um, when we did the Def Leppard cruise back in January of 2016, uh, where unfortunately Jimmy passed away, actually on the ship, uh, 
And he ended up uh, singing on stage with Def Leppard as well because Joe lost his voice on that cruise and then it was just a, a horrible cruise all around him and everything went wrong in it. But Andy stepped up on stage and, and sang Def Leppard song. <laughs> he really is, um, he has this remarkable, almost chameleon-like ability to um, to just step in there and, and, and interpret other people's work as well as, as being a great lyricist and singer in his own right. And, and, and that's another thing. I mean, I'm really, really proud of what Andrew's done on the two record. I mean, he's really, really come into his own as, as, as a world-class talent and singer and songwriter. And I really hope that this record, uh, if nothing else, becomes a real showcase for, for his talents and his abilities. Yeah. Oh, he is absolutely spectacular. You know, when I, when I heard the first album, Heavy Crown, I thought, okay, this is good. This is interesting, you know, whatever. And then I, again, and I keep coming back to this M3 performance, and then I saw him deliver the songs live and the band live, and I went, oh, okay, that's, that's another level. That's, this guy's got it, this band has got it. Um, just real quick, January, of course, marked the 28th uh, anniversary or the 28th uh, year to remember the passing of Steve Clark. Um, talk to me a little bit about learning his guitar parts and what he brought to the band. Because when you listen to Long Hard Look or Shadow King or the Dio stuff, you can hear the Vivian Campbell sound. There's, there's, a, there's a tone, there's a, there's a sound. But when you came to Def Leppard, you had to, of course, pick up some of the Steve stuff. What was it like learning his parts? And while learning them, did you learn anything else? Did it, did it, did it change your style a bit? Did, did you go, hey, that's, that's interesting. Let me, you know, um, just, just remember Steve for, for just a second. Yeah, well, I, I was a big, big Leopard fan for many years before I, I joined the band. Uh, I actually remember buying the Wasted single, uh, and you know, I bought the first album and the second and the third and so on and so forth. Uh, so I was very, very aware, you know, that that Steve was really the the riffmeister in the band. Um, and you know, I, I've come to play his parts. When I first joined Def Leppard, I didn't immediately start playing Steve's solos. You know, on, on the Adrenalized tour, certainly for the first several months of the Adrenalized tour back in 1992. Um, I would just go out there and I knew that the solo came here and I, I'd play something that was a very, very, very casual interpretation of what Steve did. But then after uh, many months on the road, I came to realize just how important Steve's solos were as part of the songs. They weren't just mindless riffing over eight or 16 bars uh, that most guitar players in hard rock do. So um, I, I really... Reevaluated my approach to it, and and I think I became a lot more respectful of what it is that Steve brought to Def Leppard uh, as a songwriter and as a soloist. And and ever since then, I've pretty much tried to to stick as, as closely as possible to to the solos that Steve did. But having said that, no two guitar players play the same, so uh, I could never even. Uh, under the best of circumstances, I, I could never play a solo exactly like Steve did, uh, and, and nor would I want to. So it's it's uh, it's always been an interesting exercise for me to, to find the right balance of, of staying true to the melodic intent of Steve's solos within these songs, and yet adding a little bit of my own flair in there as well. Um, and I think it's also helped me kind of uh, recorrect my own course as a guitar player. And, and, you know, obviously the, 
the passage of time would do that as well because you tend to have a different perspective, you know, as, as a 40-something or a 50-something-year-old guitar player than you do when you're a teenager or your early 20s. I mean, I really put a lot more uh, importance and stock into structure of solos and, and the melodic intent of it and the dynamic build of a guitar solo now than I did when I was 19. You know, um, I, I really just don't see it as, as a gap to fill. You know, I think when I remember back to doing the, the Holy Diver album with, with Jimmy and Ronnie and Vinny, when it came time to do a guitar solo, you know, all I wanted to do was play as fast as possible, you know, but I think that's kind of, uh, it's probably true of every teenage guitar player, certainly of that era and of that genre, you know, is that uh, you kind of get hung up on, on the, the flash and the technique, and that's that's where your perspective stops. It begins and ends, basically, at, at the technical aspect of it. And, and there's so, so much more to it, especially if you want something that endures over decades, like Steve Clark's music has. Um, so, yeah, I have profound respect for, for Steve as, as a songwriter and as a guitar player. Yeah, absolutely. Um, recently, I, I saw Lou Graham in Schenectady, and at that show, he announced that he was retiring from doing the solo band, and he was going to walk away. And, and, and I know you and I have spoken in the past about Long Hard Look and about Shadow King and working with him, but a minute ago you mentioned the word unsung hero. Um, just quickly, and this is really a, a fan geek question, honestly, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i be very honest, but Bruce Turgeon, who worked on those projects, how much of a hero or unsung hero was he to the Shadow King and to the Long? Because when you look when you listen to his solo stuff, or you can sort of hear, um, you know, the, the loose stuff. So just quickly talk to me about having Bruce as a bandmate back then or, or, or a working partner. And, and what did he bring to those projects, and especially Shadow King? Well, the, the Shadow, I'm not aware of, of the background on the Long Hard Look album. I mean, I literally was just brought in uh, on, a few days, on a few days notice by the producer, Peter Wolf. Um, so I, I don't know the, the, the background story on, on how the songs came together, but, but I can tell you as regards the Shadow King record, I mean, with the exception to one or two songs on that record, it is essentially a Bruce Turgeon record. I mean, he wrote the majority of the, of the music uh, with Lou and specifically for Lou. Uh, they, have a, they had a long-term partnership that, that I believe went back to their teenage years to a band called Black Sheep um, that, that uh, preceded Lou's involvement with, with Foreigner originally. So, um, you know, there was a lot of history there. I mean, I don't think that anyone had a better uh, understanding of Lou and his voice and the kind of songs that, that Lou wanted to sing uh, better than Bruce did. So, um, you know, I, I know we did talk in the past about, about how the, the wheels kind of came off, if you like, during the making of the Shadow King record. Um, and uh, so and in, into that void when when Lou you know was was going through a lot of personal issues at the time and was was unavailable emotionally and literally physically unavailable to to finish up a lot of that record, you know Bruce kind of stepped in and and essentially took over the record and uh, so I mean he he absolutely deserves uh, due credit for for the songwriting on that record it, it's essentially mostly his record. Oh yeah, I mean it really is. Um, and I that, that was my fan geek question of the day. Just real quick, Def Leppard. Um, I saw the band with Journey 
and Cheap Trick at Fenway Park in Boston as part of your stadium tour. Unbelievable uh, or just remarkable that these bands or bands like Def Leppard and Journey are having stadium tours, you know, 30-some years into the career. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the ongoing popularity about the band, and then also let's get into this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. You know, for many years, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has looked down at Bon Jovi and at Def Leppard and all, all these bands. And in, in fact, Foreigner is not even in it yet. And now you are in it. Uh, important? Is it? Is it a, a marking moment in the band's career? Um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that there, there's sort of mixed feelings about it. You know, um, on, on the one hand, I mean, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has had a bit of a checkered past and and. Uh, 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 Shall we say varied history of, of of how it goes about selecting acts to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, having said that, you know we, we'll uh, we'll certainly we're certainly glad of the of the honor um, and flattered by it, and and especially so because I believe, if my sources are correct, we had Def Leppard had the biggest popular vote ever to get into the Hall of Fame. So, um, and I think that that, that kind of speaks volumes about where our focus is in Def Leppard. I mean, we've always been about our fan base. Um, and, you know, the, the, the one uh, yardstick that I've always used uh, whereby to measure these sort of things is, is the Grammys. Uh, and I remember back in 1987 when the Hysteria album came out before I was in Def Leppard, but I was still very, very much a fan, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I remember being amazed at that record. Then about a year or so later, I remember being even more amazed that it didn't get nominated for any Grammys. (laughs) Uh, And as the years went by, you know, when when the Grammy nominations come out year after year after year, and, uh, you know, I I think to myself, I've never even heard of this artist who just won this Grammy. Uh, And then I kind of remember back and and Hysteria, one of the all-time great rock albums in rock history, never won a Grammy and never even got nominated for a Grammy. So, uh, you know, that's always kind of been in the back of my mind. And when I look at our, you know, you mentioned about us playing stadiums, the band's been together for 41 years uh, and we're selling our stadiums in North America with Journey. And we're seeing, I would guess, roughly about 30, 35, 40% of the audience are young enough to be our children. And I realize that we've crossed that generational gap and that threshold and we're now playing the people beyond our own generation and our audience is quite literally growing um that is really all that Def Leppard has ever strived for um and if if we had nothing else in the world we'd take that above anything else above the rock and roll hall of fame or a grammy nomination or or anything you know it, it's uh if you can't put people in seats and make them happy at your concert then uh you're feeling job one, you know, that's got to be the first order of business. And that's always been our focus in the band. And, uh, you know, so anything else that we receive on top of that is gravy. So uh, 2018 was an exceptional year for Def Leppard. And, and I think, you know, to get the, uh, to hear that we got accepted into the hall of the rock and roll hall of fame, the news came to us about the middle of December was just uh, a great Christmas present and, and a great end cap to what has been a phenomenal year. You know, it's um, 
there's there's great ambition in Def Leppard. There always has been, and and there's also been great industry, and and you know it's very very rewarding, uh, especially for me as a new guy of 27 years almost now in the band that to to see things finally get to where we've always believed they should be for Def Leppard for this band. You know, we, we work very, very, very hard at what we do. Our work ethic is very, very strong and always has been in, in every aspect, every discipline of what it is we do. And, you know, we've had some very, very, very lean years in the 90s when grunge happened and whatnot. And, you know, we never give up. We we, we never quit. We've always believed in, in what we were doing and, and the quality of what we do. We always try and make the show the best that it can be. Good is not good enough for Def Leppard and never has been. And uh, it, it's really nice to see all of that finally coalesce and finally come together, you know. And, and I, I, you know, as the new guy in the band, uh, I, I'm i not kidding myself to think that Def Leppard's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because of anything in particular that I've done. But I have helped for the last 27 years. I've helped the band maintain that uh, that integrity that, that we bring to the work and and. You know, I've been there for the bad times, and, and now I'm happy to say I'm there for the good times. So I'm particularly pleased, not just for the band, but in particular for the other four guys in the band, because they really, really deserve it. They really do. And I, and I have to say, and as you know, I've seen Def Leppard, I think, like 28 times, 29 times. You're still not calling it in. I mean, that stadium show you had, you know, 40, 45,000, whatever it was, and you could have just easily done a paint-by-number kind of approach, as, by the way, with Journey. And neither band did that. You you played it as if it was the most important show of your careers. And it's just remarkable to see now. I know you have your Canadian sort of summer vacation coming, uh, summer vacation, summer tour coming up uh, in, um, in July. You'll be in Montreal on July 17th at the Bell Centre with Tesla. Just uh, quickly talk to me about the Canadian tour and the... The appreciation that Canadian fans have for you, because even before you were in the band and after, whatever you know, whether it's Adrenalized Tour or Hysteria Tour, the Canadian fans, and particularly Quebec fans, have always been in the corner of Def Leppard. We have never turned our backs on you, even in the 90s. I mean, you have a show here from 96 that you had recorded uh, and put out on, on CD singles and stuff. The, the response has always been... Uh, you know, the, the fan base has always been very, very loyal to you. It has, yeah. I mean, Canada's always been a great market for Leopard. Um, in fact, I mean, back in the days when people actually sold records, I don't know if you remember those days, but... Um, I do. Canada, yeah, Canada was always Def Leopard's biggest market uh, per capita, you know, so it's always been a great, great place for Def Leopard to come to, and... Um, so, yeah, we, we're happy that we're actually doing a, a comprehensive Canadian tour again and, and getting to some of the places that we don't get to very often. And and I will say that, and I've gone on record saying this uh, many, many times for many, many years, that Montreal is one of the greatest rock audiences on the planet. Uh, I don't know why, and it's not really venue dependent and it's not even band dependent because I played there with Dio, I played there with Whitesnake I even played there when I did a, a brief stint with Thin Lizzy years ago um, and of course I've played there multiple times with Def Leppard and it's always, always, always such a fantastic warm audience, there's something about the people of Montreal when it comes to going to a rock show that 
they just let loose. Uh, the energy of a Montreal rock concert is, is one of my all-time favorite experiences. So I'm looking forward to that one as well. Yeah, it really is. And and I'll, I'll add, you know, having traveled to shows as well, when you go to Chicago, Boston, Detroit, Montreal, Quebec, th- those are the ones that are, you know, those rock cities. Those, I don't know, they, they just get it. Uh, Vivian, absolute pleasure. And of course, when you're in Montreal, you know, if you, if you ever need anything, just let me know. Happy to take you around, buy you dinner, whatever you need. My, my pleasure. And uh, folks, Thank you, yeah, absolutely. And last in line, two, uh, just... Just, folks, just go buy it. Uh, just absolutely great. Well done, like everything. And uh, as we say up here, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mitch. It's always a pleasure. You be well. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. And a very big thank you to uh, Vivian Campbell. And uh, back on the line, it is, of course, uh, Steve Brown and Alan Niven. Rebonjour. Welcome again, uh, gentlemen. Tony Harnell. Um, who wants to go first? Steve, do you know Tony at all, being that he at some point lived in New York or still lives in New York? Yeah, yeah, I've known I've known Tony for 30 years. We 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 met back in the late 80s. We had the same vocal teacher, this great my my dear friend, old friend uh, Don Lawrence, who was kind of like the rock star vocal coach on the East Coast in New York, you know, Mick Jagger, Bon Jovi, um Bono and Tony Harnell, Steve Brown. So, yeah, that's how I met Tony and um uh, Trickster actually. We opened up for TNT back in the day when they played some club in New Jersey and uh, funny stories we tried to steal their sound man but our manager and I went up to him and tried talking to him but all he spoke and uh, I guess what, what are they from Denmark TNT from, uh, from? Norway I believe Norway or whatever so he didn't he didn't speak any English so we <laughs> couldn't talk to him so we didn't steal their sound guy <laughs> That's funny, and of course, just uh, I'll just quickly tell the folks the uh, the album is uh, by Starbreaker. It's called uh, Dysphoria, and it also includes Magnus Carlson, who is currently playing with Primal Fear. Uh, Sir Niven, are you familiar with TNT? Because they have been around for thirty years. They were, of course, part of the European thing. Um, cross paths or completely unaware? Totally and completely unaware, apart from the fact that I recognized the name and recognized some of the names, but um, no one no one that we actually worked with. Okay. Um, Steve, let me put this to you then. Uh, a few years ago, uh, because I talked with Tony uh, in the interview about his time with Skid Row, he joined the band. Did you have a chance to, to see that lineup with Skid Row? Because I know they play that sort of... Uh, Eastern Seaboard, where where you sort of hang out, uh, was that something you saw? And, and and what did you think of of any videos or anything you might have thought of that sort of combination? Well, um, yeah, I did see it. I we, we did bu- a bunch of shows together. I think we did. Um, uh, we, Trickster and Skid Row, we did a couple festivals together when Tony was in that band. I thought he did a pretty good job. You know, it was just, it wasn't right. 
um, from the beginning, and that's a definite reason why it never lasted. Um, but I think uh, they wanted to give, you know, Rachel and Snake wanted to give Tony a shot because, again, you know, he was an East Coast guy for as long as I can remember, and we've all been friends, and it just didn't work out. You know, I think he did some of the stuff pretty well, and then some of the stuff he really didn't do. I don't think Tony's heart was in, the, in, in it from the beginning. So that that just goes to show you why it didn't work. Yeah, and and you know it's always funny because I see uh, people over the years say, well, if Metallica had Dave Lombardo, they'd be a better band, or if CC Deville wasn't in Poison, they had. And and sometimes it's not about the talent; it's about being the right player for. You know, listen, nobody wants to hear Neil Peart in Kiss. There, there's a certain magic to Peter Chris doing that, and it wouldn't work with anybody else. Anyway, um, I'll throw this well, both... There's, yeah. There's always that aspect, and I'm, I'd be interested to hear Steve talk on this, but from my perspective, um, personality chemistry is as important as playing skills. And you can have a really, really good vocalist or a really good singer, but they, they're not going... You're going to be putting a a square peg in a round hole a lot of the times when you're trying to replace somebody in a band because it's not the original chemistry. That, that, that's yeah, true. It's true, without, without, without question. I mean, and that's, you know, Alan, you know this more than probably better than anybody. And, you know, we, we say this all the time as being in bands and, and myself playing, being like a fill-in guy. And, you know, the first and foremost, the, the most important thing is being able to get along with the band that you're working with, whether it's your main band that you're in or when you're a sub. So that's the most important thing, you know, and that's the reason, you know, the depth for the for depth leopard the fact that i've known those guys for 30 plus years and when i was brought in you know they all knew me we were like family already and it, it's you know it's very important especially with you know with older rock bands and rock stars that they're comfortable and the personality aspect of it is just as if not more important than the musical ability yeah, yeah and i agree absolutely critical and you know I, I i tip my hat to you steve to be able to do that because that's beyond just being a good guitar player that says a lot about personality and character yeah, oh, well, thank you, thank you very much. And yeah, I'm, I'm also uh, I'm also a uh, snazzy dresser and a pretty good dancer too. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I'll say uh, that, that's I think what works with with you and PJ Farley, especially when you do the Eric Martin band and all that other stuff. You guys have this thing together that just is is unique and special. Um, since we're here, what is the current status of, of Trickster? Is there a, a major 2019 Trickster reunion tour or or farewell tour being announced? <laughs> yeah, farewell tour. I don't I, n nothing really right now. You know, we're just PJ and I are just so busy with our, you know, with our other projects. And uh, you know, Pete and Pete and Gus are off doing their thing. Don't really know what they're doing. So we'll, we'll see. Anything can happen. But uh, you know, getting back to it, you know, we we actually started PJ and I started writing songs for you know the the project that we're doing with Eric Martin. So uh, Eric has some has about five uh, tracks that he's starting to write stuff to. So I think it's. Some point maybe 2020 you're going to see uh, Eric Martin Steve Brown PJ Farley whatever we decide to call the band we're going to see uh, see a record and I think it's going to blow people away because 
the the stuff that I wrote and the stuff that PJ wrote, man, if Eric puts, if he does some, you know, does some, does his Eric Martin vocal magic and lyrical magic, we're going to have a phenomenal uh, CD on our hands. You really are. And, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you want to give your drummer of the Eric Martin band a shameless plug? He just put out a new book. Come on, just throw him some oh. love. What do we got? Of course, Joey Casada. Yes, Joey, our drummer, who's one of the you know greatest drummers that I've ever played with, and just a great guy all around. He's written a book that uh, Joey Casada, st- um, Start with a Dream, and it's his story, uh, an incredible story. I'm actually just about done with it, and uh, we have this group text going on between PJ, Joey, Chris Jericho, and Eric Martin, and we're actually quizzing each other on Joey's book. But it's a phenomenal book, a great story about a kid from Brooklyn who grew up in a broken family and, you know, um, just, to, you know, uh, against all the odds, achieved, you know, some great success and just great stories about friendship and, and playing and going on tour with Kiss and having a show on cable. That was a great show. There's the rock show and uh, just a, just an incredible, you know, incredible story and, and, you know, some funny stories about our late, uh, my very dear friend and band brother, David, David Z is in there because he was in the band um, ZO2 with Joey and uh, Paulie, and uh, it's a phenomenal book. So I'm so we're so happy for Joey. So everybody, go out and buy Joey Casada's book. It's it's awesome, as they'd say in Brooklyn. Yo, man, go out and get Joey's book. It'll knock your socks off. Yes, and and I do have the book sitting here next to me. And of course, we we will have Joey on, and we'll discuss it at, at length with him, and get all his stories of playing wiffle ball with. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, <laughs> which you can't go wrong with wiffle ball stories. But uh, here, I'm going to throw this one last thing before we head over to Tony Harnell talking about Starbreaker and their new album. A uh, lot of rumors coming out of NAM that David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, and the rest of the Van Halen guys are going to go do a stadium tour and blah, blah, blah. What are your thoughts? I will start with you, uh, Alan. Do you, first of all, do you care if Van Halen comes back? And do you think they'll come back given all this sort of where there's smoke, where there's fire kind of stuff? Well, I mean, we're all aware of various moments in Van Halen history. Um, Wasn't there a a previous moment when they were going to reform and it evaporated with incredible alacrity? Um, you know, hopefully they'll get through. They'll give a lot of pleasure to a lot of people if they go out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope, I hope David's uh, up for it. But um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit in the other singer camp with Van Halen. I love the songs really? that they did. But, yeah, I love the songs that they did with DLR. But for a vocalist, I'm, I'm with the other guy a little bit. You know, I... I, I don't think I ever fully recovered from the Montrose album. Well, 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 hold on a second, because I've always seen you as being more old school, pure, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, when you talk about purists in the Van Halen camp, it's, well, it's the original lineup. And, and, and I would see you as thinking that Sammy Hagar and his era was too syrupy, too, you know, top 40. So you really are more of a Sammy Hagar or Van Hagar fan. I think I might be. Um, wow, there's a revelation. You know, That'll be on uh, Alternative Nation by, by the time this hits. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, 
you know, and David's an interesting character, shall we say. Um, there was a moment in the United Kingdom where he made an unfortunate comment to me and Slash, and I just looked at him and I thought to myself, you are either the most dumb, intelligent person I know or the most intelligent dumbass I know. You know, it was after Donington and he made a really unfortunate comment about it. But, uh, you know, it, if, if they get back together, have at it because I want to see people out there. I want to see people buying tickets. I would love to see them take out somebody who deserves to uh, be exposed to their audience. Wow. Okay. So, and, and, and Steve, where are you? I'm going to ask you, Sammy or Dave first, and then we'll talk reunion. Sammy or Dave? I, I could, I, you know, at this point, I could care less. I love them both. I love, you know, I mean, the original Van Halen was the reason in 1978 that I started playing guitar. So, of course, I'm so it's their fault too. Yeah, you know, I'm very partial to the David Lee Roth era, but you know, I love Sammy and I spent a lot of time with them with on on that era, with on tour with them, hanging out with Ed and stuff. So, uh but yeah, I've heard, I've been hearing that, you know, there there's very very good um very big rumors that Michael is going to be coming back. It's going to be the all original Van Halen. And I think if they go out with Dave, I think they have to do that because, you know, I, I know we've all heard this saying many times going, they've gone to the well too many times, you know, with their different versions of, and I think for them to have, and especially play stadiums, that's, that's kind of, and I know Roth put that out there that they're they're playing, uh, maybe playing Yankee Stadium. I don't know. Stadiums are, I mean, that's a tough that's a tough sell to sell out a stadium, you know. And, and Steve, that's but, where, Steve, that's where I'd agree with you entirely. Yeah. I think if you're going to go out there, and especially at that level, and you're going to use the word reunion. I think you need to get everybody involved and all the originals involved. I think that's the magic that people want to see. Oh, without without question, you know, and I think that you know, and and what I don't know, but I've I've heard that you know Wolfgang's got a solo record coming out, and I heard that he's going to open up. But that's kind of the plan, but it's all rumors. I don't I don't know anything, you know. I would love to see the original Van Halen back together, you know. I, I really, you know, I feel bad that Michael got kind of you know raked through the coals and you know kind of ousted from the band, and you know we all know the stories from the books from Noel Monk's book about how badly Michael was treated but you know i think no matter what michael would love you know jump at the offer to play with you know the original van halen together and i think that yeah. they would i think that that michael is the uh, kind of the it factor for making it happen you know to be successful so we'll see you know? i agree i agree and i do think that stadiums alone is a tough sell i mean i think if you pair them with and I have thrown out on the internet like a Foo Fighters or something relevant. You can sell it. You know, like Journey and Def Leppard did it. Journey alone, I don't think would have done stadiums last year. Def Leppard alone, I don't think would have done stadiums last year. But together, yes, of course. So I think even if it's a reunion, there has to be something up front that is going to make people say, okay, this is worth 175 bucks for me to sit, you know, you know, a, a field ball, a, a baseball field away from from this band, and and right. I mean, do we agree that that it, it can't be just 
the four guys, it has to be Van Halen with another band if they do stay. Oh, 100, 150%. There's no question. I, I don't think any promoter would even touch if it was just Van Halen. I think they need a band of their, of their level, maybe a little bit less, to even make it uh, even appetizing for promoters. I don't, I don't see. I think, it's just, I think it's Roth just shooting his mouth off, you know, saying something well, that, you know, wit, wishful thinking, right? Well, especially the ticket prices that they are uh, inherent in asking for those ticket prices. You've got to put together a really, really must-see show. Yeah. But then, of course, others will say, well, Guns N' Roses did it with, you know, you know, they had the Dead Daisies, for example, open up in uh, Spain or so. So, I yeah, don't know. And we know, how, and we know how many of those shows had to be papered. Ouch. Well, okay. <laughs> we perhaps yeah no it, it's interesting they, they need a package I, I don't think alone uh, I think an arena tour with just uh, Van Halen works I don't think a stadium tour with just Van Halen works but of course this is all idle chatter because nothing has been announced and nothing may be announced who knows we'll see uh, Lee boys uh, thank you uh, so much always always a great pleasure and I guess we should get over to Tony Harnell at this point all right. Thanks for having me on, guys. Alan, pleasure to talk with you. Mitch, love you, brother. You guys are great. And uh, keep doing keep doing what you're doing. The, ro- yeah. the Rock and Roll Podcast world needs you guys. Yes, so here we go. Uh, without further... Well, oh, you got something to say, Alan? I, I was just going to say it was a pleasure to talk with you too, Steve. And, uh, you know, by all means, get my number off, uh, off Mitch and um, we'll trade some more stories off the record. Oh, I, w- I would love that. All right, guys, have a great show. Hold on, Talk Steve. Let me, let me introduce Tony before you run off. Uh, here from uh, Starbreaker and a TNT new album, Dysphoria. It is available now. It is the one, the only, Tony Harnell. We are speaking with singer Tony Harnell. The new album is Dysphoria from what his currently known as his project Starbreaker. Good day, sir. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, Mitch. How are you? Good to talk to you. Good. So we had this discussion off air. Starbreaker, because it hasn't toured, is not a band, but just a project. So I guess the first question then is, will the band get on the road with Magnus and the other guys and play some shows? You know, that's my that's been my hope, Um, you know, and it's a it's a great it's a great project. And um you know, it's something I'm really proud of. I'm proud of all three albums, and I think uh, I think it has a lot of potential. Magnus has a, a family; he likes to stay at home and and work on recordings more than touring. So he really just doesn't tour. But that doesn't mean we can't get out and do uh, you know some festivals uh, here and there. So that's something that is a possibility. Um, but for me. Well, I was going to say, do you think he would give you yeah. permission? Do you think he would give you permission just to get in a replacement guy, you know, a, a, a touring member and, and not say I'm out of it. I'm not going to do this. But, hey, I want to stay home. Here's, you know, whatever Johnny to go play. And yeah. man, could, would, is that possible? It's possible. It, it's he's such an uh, important I, I'm kind of a purist in that way. Uh, it's it's. It's sort of like why people have asked me, why don't you go out and do like your version of TNT since it's been so hard to get the guys to come to the U.S. or, you know, what have you. Um, 
you know, I, I hate seeing these multiple versions of bands. Uh, when it comes to something like this, I just feel that Magnus is such a such an important part of it. Would I go out on my own as as myself uh, on a solo tour and and get a great guitar player and play Starbreaker, Westworld, TNT, you know, all the stuff uh, that I've done over the years? Yes, I, that makes more sense in a, in a way, you know, to just to put it all together rather than. Um, rather than call it something where the key, you know, the other key member can't go. So I guess there will be a, a, a Tony Harnell tour coming up then at some point in, in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Working on that. Actually, I spoke to, uh, spoke to an agent today overseas. I have uh, one I've been speaking to here in the States. So yes, we are working that out. I am doing some acoustic shows, but the next natural step is to, is to, uh, get into the electric, um, shows which uh, i'm really excited about and i have a, a couple other releases coming out later this year so it's a good year for me to get out and play for sure ah, ah, do uh, do tell me about those well no in fact keep that for the end let's get into okay. dysphoria i mean of course the last album yeah. love's dying wish came out in 2008 so 11 years between albums from this project uh yeah. first let, let, let's just go with why the delay and then what does this mean moving forward? Do you, do you see yourself doing another Starbreaker in two, three years? Or it's like, hey, listen, I fill in the gaps when I can. Just enjoy it, folks. And then we'll talk about the actual putting together of this album. Uh, well, you know, I, I was touring quite a bit. I, I did some solo, um, some solo releases uh, around, you know, in the gap between that you're talking about. I put out an acoustic album in 2010. Um, called the Mercury Train, and then another one in 2013 called the Wildflowers with uh, Bumblefoot, and uh, so I've been putting out music, but a lot of that time has actually been spent touring. And um, when I when I'm not recording, I was touring. So 2014, I toured with TNT. Uh, 2010, I was uh, doing quite a few shows. Um, 2009 was a little bit of a crazy year i went through some health stuff and my mom passed away so that year was kind of a unusual but um yeah every year was filled with something and uh so 2014 was tnt 2015 was skid row um and 2016 and 17 were tnt related so all year 2017 i was touring with tnt so overseas sadly. And, and and don't and forget for listening. I was just going to say yeah. don't forget 2013 you did that uh, Kiss Love Gun track for the A World with Heroes uh Kiss tribute that that ended up giving $35,000 to a palliative care home here in Montreal so 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 thank, thank you, you for that. that. Yeah, so thank you for that yeah. cuz I and because I know that to get you to do that I sort of had to twist your arm because you're not let's call it a natural Kiss fan. You 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 know. <laughs> right? Well, you know, I mean, I know that seems like blasphemy to a lot of people. Um, it just, I was in the seventies. I was, you know, I was pretty young, like, like a lot of my peers are listening to different kinds of music. And I just gravitated more towards different, different things, whether it be uh Led Zeppelin or, or, you know, what, whatever it was uh, that I was listening to. It just, it, that was my choice. Um, kiss just didn't catch me uh for whatever reason um you know the imagery was cool i always was always fascinated by it but when i for me even as a kid when i put the record on it had to it had to be more than just the makeup you know for me um and again what i'm saying could probably offend 
because I know Kiss's fans are, you know, pretty hardcore. I have friends that are amazing musicians that love Kiss. Um, it just never really clicked with me, you know. Well, listen, uh, I still like you. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun doing that track, and I think it came out pretty, pretty good. So the, the track came out good, and it was for it's for a great cause. Um, I, I let me get back to dysphoria here in a second, yeah. but. But but you mentioned TNT, so let's let's just address the the the, the elephant in the room. You're in at the band, you're out of the band, you're in the band, you're out of the mm. band. Um, <laughs> what happened? Why why can't you stay in the band, or why can't you just stay out of the band? You know, mm-hmm. what's this sort of love hate relationship? And are mm. you out 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 out? I mean, are, is it done, or in 2022 you might go back? I mean. What happened with that band? You know, it's unfortunate that people only see that from a distance. They see like sort of he's in, he's out, you know, and then unfortunately there was a situation that happened in between all of that with, um, with Skid Row and the TNT situation, um, sadly is very, very, was a very different animal and always has been a different animal than the TNT situation. Um, you know, the, the best way to describe it without, trying to hurt anybody or throw anybody under the bus is that it's, you know, it's complicated. <clears throat> and, uh, most of the time when I'm, when, when it doesn't work, it, it's not, pe- people like to look at it and go like, I have people, you know, texting me or, or message messaging me on, so, on social media all the time and saying, um, do you guys talk? You know, are you, why don't you guys talk? And I'm like, no one ever said we weren't talking. I, I talked to Ronnie fairly regularly. Um, it's, it's very, only one time has it really been a, a personal breakdown between the two of us. And even then it didn't last very long. You know, one of us will generally reach out to the other after a little bit of time goes by. Most of the time it's been for business reasons. And for whatever reason, TNT has been incredibly unlucky. Uh, and I don't even like to use luck that much when it comes to this. But let's say we've made bad choices with managers and people handling the band. So often it's the business side of things that is so in disarray. And there is a particular band member that I really struggle with working with. And it's not Ronnie. <laughs> and... uh but, but beyond that, it's generally just business. You know, it's usually like, come on guys, we got to do it this way. And they're doing it another way and it doesn't work. It's clearly not working when I'm not there. It doesn't work. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I hear things I wouldn't disclose to you in the interview, but, uh, uh, they, they've tried to put the pieces together a few times after I've gone and it's always the same. So, so the, finger pointing that goes on sometimes, um, in their little world over in Norway, um, it is kind of, a, you know, it's, it's unwarranted and normally it, it, they're actually pretty good about it because they know that it has a lot more to do. It, it's a lot more complicated than that. And often, like I say, my, my reasons for walking away are just that I try really hard to pull it together. I go in every time with a re- refreshed attitude and everybody's like, yeah, let's do this and gung ho. And then some time passes and it's just back to the same uh, struggle for control and, and some some unqualified person that's trying to manage the band that's actually hurting hurting us, usually hurting the brand and hurting uh, 
how the band is, is, is seen and portrayed and the money situation and so on and so on and so on. So, uh, ne- never seem to get everything cleaned up. You know, people ask me all the time, why can't I find, you know, I mean, if you go on any of the major digital sites, whether it be iTunes or what have you, there is a lot of music missing, not just from TNT, but from other good work I've done outside TNT, whether it be Westworld or some of the other things I've done. Um, but at the very least, all the TNT records should be there and they're not. And, and I'm talking, you know, major label releases like Knights of the New Thunder. Can't find that. Um, Which know, is uh, unfortunate. And how much hmm. of of the distance, the physical geographical distance between Norway and, and an American <laughs> singer, the, the, because it must be hard sometimes to put a tour together to get those guys, you know, three, four guys flown over to here to get a tour started. And fans don't seem to understand yeah. that before you play yeah. the first show, you can be twenty to $25,000 in the hole when you, you know, add in flights and tour managers and, yeah. you know, and, and renting a yeah. tour bus. Uh, and then, of course, you getting over there, a little less expensive, but the the, yeah. the the geography must play into some of this, right? It it does. It, it plays into the difficulty. And, and you know, being being that most of, of the shows that we've done in the past um, 15 years have been based, uh, or even more than that, really, um, 20 years, have been based overseas, whether it be Japan. We've been to Japan several times. and uh, but mostly Europe. Yeah. It's a lot of wear and tear on me too, because it's not like we just set a m- couple of months aside to do a European tour. It's like the way things are booked is, is as though I'm living there. So as you may know, a lot, and a lot of fans may know a lot of the bands over here do what they call the weekend warrior thing where, you know, you basically go out for two or three days a week and you play, say, Thursday through Saturday or, or Friday through Sunday or whatever the case may be, and you come home. And that's pretty much what the band will do overseas. So I'm, and then with pockets, you know, you, you may have 10 days or two weeks where you don't have any shows and then it makes sense for me to fly home. Um, but if we have week back-to-back weekends, I'll stay there until that run is complete. So a run might be eight shows over four weeks or, or 10 shows over four weeks or whatever it may be. Um, but for example, in 2017, I flew back and forth. I, I don't even know how many times I, I couldn't even tell you it was less, it was a lot. And I always feel when I do that, that I'm jet lagged the entire year, you know, because as soon as I get comfortable on, on in this time zone, I'm, I'm back on a plane over there again and vice versa. Um, takes its toll when you, uh, when you, when you're lacking sleep and you have to roll into a show and then a couple shows in a row that require interesting travel schedules and things like that yeah, um, no, from it, one city to another. It really is. So let me, let, let, let's not make this interview all TNT. Let's get over no, to, no, no, no. let's get over yeah. to, to I mean, dysphoria. I mean, just to just, yeah. just, well, just to, just to wrap that subject up since yeah. you brought it up. So it, it's something that I really, really want to do. I, I, my heart, look, it's 35 years of music. It's 35 years of work, of really hard work, uh, putting it into something. And so as you get older, you keep, you keep kind of looking in your mind, you sort of go, man, you know, that's my thing that I spent time on. And those are my songs and I want to go out and do my songs with my band and 
reap the re, you know the benefits of that. So that's the reason why you get frustrated and you go, I, this isn't working and there's no way to make it work. So you try, you try, you have meeting after meeting and you can't get anywhere. And finally you throw your hands up and say, this is just is either I have to accept things being all crazy and screwed up or I have to walk away from my sanity, which is often what I do. I shouldn't really call them breakups. They should just be breaks. And sadly, we never really put that all together, but that's, that's kind of what they ought to be is just, Hey, I need a break from you guys. This is nuts. Then go back to it again. When, when we can figure out how to get another year or two out of it. Well, but let's, you let's, said, let's... would I ever, you, you said, would I ever go back? Yes. I mean, it's always on the table for me because they're my songs and I'd rather play my songs with Ronnie because Ronnie and me on stage, it, it's the way the songs sound the best and it's what the audience wants to see on stage. So yeah, that is, that's always the best case. And he and I are like brothers and brothers generally love each other and hate each other at the same time. So <laughs> that's, right. that's kind of how we, that's kind of how, how it is. But, uh, but I feel bad for the fans um, who, who never got to see the band. And I'm hoping that in this lull here that we are finally old enough, everybody, to look at it and step back and say, this has been really silly. Can we just get a proper person to help us run this thing and let's put it together and let's go out and play a proper, you know, couple of year tour, releasing a record or whatever and some box, a box set, whatever it may be, re, you know, putting out vinyl, getting the old stuff together, getting it out there for the fans and for us too. Um, so that's my hope is that we have one last really beautiful shot at uh, giving the fans and us a really great ending to this story. You know? yeah. So that, that's all I'll say on it. Yeah, and that would be great. So let's let's quickly head over to dysphoria, which of course means a state mm. of feeling unhappy or dissatisfied. Now, is that some discontent. kind of com- yeah. discontent? Is it a... a a personal discontent or is it a sort of a, a look upon what's going on in the world these days? Where, where does that sort of title come from? And, you know, the, these songs, when you're writing for Starbreaker or, or TNT or how, how do you differentiate the songwriting between different bands and projects and, and, you know, other, those other avenues? I don't. For, for me, when I sit down to write, I just, um, I reflect everything that comes out is a reflection of what's going on for me uh, or people close to me that I care about. So the lyrics are going to be a direct reflection of, of, of the, the present feelings that I have about, about any number of things. So I thought the title was appropriate for not only the songs on the album and the personal, they're very personal songs. They happen to be for me, um, but they, it does work as a title for what's going on in the world today, for sure, I think. At least that's my observation. Yeah, it really does. Now, uh, we spoke at the beginning that uh, there's no tour planned and, and it's hard to get Magnus to come out. But it, do you see these songs performed at all in the next little bit? Or does the album come out and it's just a sort of listening experience and, and fans, you know, get your headphones on and then just imbibe these songs. Well, I, I think, and I don't know if you had a chance to listen or not, but I think it's a very special album. At least that that's my feeling on it. These albums are, 
you know, oftentimes, uh, when you, when you do these kinds of records, um, it, it, at least, you know, this is my observation. I mean, they aren't always very interesting to listen to. And I think this one came out really well. I think Magnus and I are a great writing team. Uh, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of it. So, so that's that I want to say for sure. I mean, the songs are very close, personal for me. They're very, uh, they mean a lot to me, the lyrics, uh, what I was, what I was going through in my own life when I wrote these songs is, um, you know, was, was pretty heavy. So this was a pretty emotional and important record for me that I'll always look back to, uh, as I go forward, you know, in life. So I hope people listen to it and get something out of it. Um, you know, because it really does have a lot of, there are a lot of great songs on the record. So it's not, it's not something that's just sort of, okay, here's something, you know, new for me. It actually really is uh, something that I hope people will embrace. And, uh, and I will play some of these songs. In fact, I'm doing an, uh, uh, a couple of acoustic shows in Europe in a couple of weeks, and I'll be playing um, uh, the, the recent single, How Many More Goodbyes, uh, acoustically. And I will probably put a few Starbreaker songs into my set when I go out to play electric shows um, later in the year. So that that would be great. I can't, can't yeah. wait. And hopefully we can figure out a way to get you to uh, to Canada and get a, a show or two because uh, God, when was the last time you played here? If ever, I mean, it's been, it's been forever, right? Oh, probably with Skid Row in 2015. Uh, we did, we did probably, uh, I don't know exactly how many shows, but I, I feel like we did at least five Canadian shows, maybe. Oh, that's right. Out, out, you did them out West in Edmonton and in Calgary and stuff like that. If I remember correctly. Right. Anyway, uh, all right. So I don't remember all the cities, but yeah. Right. So, so let me quickly talk to you about the Skid Row thing, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but, but, okay. you know, recently on my social media, I put out a post <laughs> that said, "On this day, uh, Tony quit uh, via Facebook thing," and 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 you said to me, yeah. uh, and you know, correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong here, but you said to me, "I'm not very proud of how I did that," and and I got the understanding. This is me speaking that if you had to do it again, you would have done it a different way. And so the question being, and you know what it is, would you do it again? I mean, do you regret the way you, you, you left the band and, and, you know, should you have done it some way different? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, I was, um, you know, I was upset about some things. It's fine. You know, that happens. Um, and, uh, things were a little tense within, you know, between myself and the guys, but, uh, but we were going forward and the last shows we had done together toward the end of the year, I think were the, they were in November leading into the holiday season. They were very, they were probably the best shows we had done with me. Um, it took a while you know, just to touch on that for a minute, you know, a lot of people, whoever is not Sebastian in that band is going to have a rough time with the fans. But I actually felt, uh, for the most part, and I, I stay off so social media, uh, to the degree that I don't like to look at all the comments. Cause there's no reason for an artist to have to see all that negativity. Um, you know, it's nice to see the positive stuff, but I'd rather somebody else say, yeah, I took a look and it's, it's mostly positive. So don't worry, you know? Um, but, uh, I felt pretty warmly embraced when I was in that, um, situation and I felt lucky about that. And, uh, 
I think the fans were, were really kind to me. And I, but I don't think that I got my footing with the songs till the last month or two that I was there. And uh, I've read some things since then. You know, there, was, there were a couple of comments I did happen to see recently under, I think, your post, um, where someone said they came to see the band. It was horrible. Uh, but the show they went to was relatively early uh, in, in my, you know, tenure there. So, um, even my, even me, I could easily say, yeah, it definitely took me a while to get to, to wrap my, wrap my bones or my, or my, my body or whatever you want to say around those songs. Um, they're unusual songs to sing. They're iconic. People know the songs from hearing them so many times on the radio. So there's a, they're burned into people's minds. And, um, and they're high as all hell. <laughs> They're not really, they're not just so much high as they are. Some of them are on, are in unusual keys for a singer. Uh, and that may sound funny to people that don't know music, but, um, traditionally for rock or hard rock, you know, those keys tend to be kind of somewhat common, you know, and, uh, not all the skid row keys are, are common. So some of the songs fall into unusual places, but, um, they worked really well for Sebastian. It was weird to, he and I uh, were friends, really good friends going way back. He's a great guy. Um, you know, uh, we have, we had a good history, a good friendship in the early, early days of Skid Row. And, uh, and it was unusual for me, you know, being a guy that he used to mention as someone he looked up to, to kind of replace, usually it's the other way around, you know, so it was a weird position to be in. But I, I went way back also with the guys in the band. And although we never had a close friendship, we knew each other from afar. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a perfect storm for me in a way because I wanted to do it. I was discontent with uh, TNT at the end of 2014. The opportunity came along and I thought, you know what? I haven't really been in a successful American band and I'd like to play more shows on my own you know, turf, let's, let me do this. And, and, and I did like the guy, I liked the guys a lot and I thought the, they were, they're a great band. So I thought the possibilities to write new music with them was also on my mind, you know, uh, wouldn't it be cool if I could sort of be me in the context of what they do and, and maybe bring something, you know, to the table and um, not to take away from what they do at all, but, you know, to kind of combine the two things. Um, but uh, that seemed along the way, I wasn't sure how that was, you know, playing itself out, but it was a perfect storm. I mean, I had never been in a band, to be honest with you, uh, in all of my professional life, I'd never been in a band situation where it wasn't my band. And, and it was something I knew going into it, that it was going to be an adjustment for me. It was just a little interest you know it was different it was very different i had a great time honestly uh there were a lot of shows that were so much fun um the travel in between uh a lot of fun times you know afterwards and you know hanging out with everybody but it was a bit of a, bit of a perfect storm for me and that i was going through a really the beginning of what would be a, one of the most difficult times in my life and uh the climax of it was, uh, was, was the end of 2015. <laughs> and I was, you know, in a bar drinking way too much was 
was pissed off at the world and did a stupid thing. And that was it. And it was very unprofessional. I've, I've never done anything like that before. And I haven't done anything like that since. And, <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. Uh, regardless of whatever was happening, you know, between us and, you know, I'm not even going to get into that because it doesn't matter. Uh, any of that doesn't matter because even if, uh, it wasn't working and I was unhappy, that move was lame. And I take full responsibility for it. Even if the best thing for me to do would have been to continued on, uh, and, and figured out a way, sat down and done it professionally. If, if I didn't, if I wasn't happy and, um, and did it in a way that didn't hurt them and didn't hurt me. And honestly, it probably hurt me more than it hurt them. But, um, well, but I, since, I mean, it, um, it, it brought on some fan ire. If fans went, you know, they raised an eyebrow and said, what the f- is that? Uh, yeah. well, so, so let me ask you this and, and you can well, tell especially me you can... on the heels, especially on the heels of the TNT thing, me being in and out. I think it gave people the impression that I was like the quitter or something like, you know, and, and that's really not the case. I've been so loyal to TNT, hence I keep ending up back there. And so what people don't see is what, what causes him, you know, to go, it's kind of like, um, in a way, I suppose if I didn't have all those songs there with TNT and it wasn't such a big part of my life, I wouldn't go back to a place that's so toxic at times. Um, so so in, in a sense, you know, going back to it makes me like the abused wife that, that keeps going back to the, to the husband. But, right. uh, but it, it, it's different because it's my songs. It's my music. So let me ask you this, and, and you can tell me to bugger off if you want. But okay. do, do, you, uh, do, do you owe uh, the fans an apology for that? Or do you owe the Skid Row, the band, an apology for that? Is that something that you go, I hey? Have, okay. I have apologized to, to, to both the band and the fans. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a really dumb thing to do. That's basically all there is to it. Um, and I've since, uh, which is going to be part of my story for January. I have, I have quite a lot of things that are coming up for me this month, not just the Starbreaker release, but some other, I guess I'll call them milestones. And, um, I'll just drop a little hint since the timing of this is going to, is about yeah, right. So but, let's hear um, it. But I, I've, I've, I quit drinking uh, it's a, a year ago, and uh, I'm really proud of that. And that, that does play a, a role in, in the stupid thing that I did um, at the end of 2015. And a lot of people that know me would be like, what? We never saw the guy, you know, drunk or anything. And, and it was, that's why it's so, it, it was kind of a... Um, Insidious kind of Kind of a... It was like my little private thing that a lot of people didn't really weren't really aware of, not not even some people that were very close to me. So um, so so that's, uh, you know, that's definitely play that definitely played a role. I wouldn't say that it's uh, it's it's the only thing, you know, that's wrong, quote wrong. <laughs> but at the time, but uh, but it did play a role in the whole scenario. Um and I, I don't want to go into it any deeper, but there were a lot of things going on at that time. Well, let me, so, so, well, the well, dynamic. Well, yeah, let's leave, let's leave it at that. And, and first of all, congratulations on, on like one year of sobriety, which is, uh, well, thank you. You know, that's, that's, that is something that is difficult. And so when you get to that point, it is, uh, something to be proud of. 
because it, it's not okay. easy. The bottle's always staring at you. <laughs> you know, every time you go play a show, there's, there's anyway. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's, it's more this, of a mindset. What I've learned over is. time is it's definitely more of a mindset than it is necessarily, um, you know, based solely on, uh, on, on having to drink something. It's a lot more, there's a lot more to it if people aren't, to, if, if people aren't aware of that. But, you know, anyway, I'm glad that, I hope that, you know, I just, I just go forward like, you know, sounds cliche one day at a time. And I hopefully, hopefully that stuff's behind me. And, uh, I don't plan on uh, ever being back in that, uh, that situation again. So, and, and I hope it for you uh, because, and, uh, thank you. yeah. And, and, <laughs> and so let me, then, let me just finish with this. Uh, sure. uh, since we're running out of time, uh, you know, frontiers records has of course put out Starbreaker. The album is dysphoria and it is just a, well, I mean, the name itself doesn't sound like a fun album, but it is a fun album. It, it's, <laughs> it, it's a rock and roll album. It's got some great tunes on there. How many more goodbyes? Pure Evil and the and, and other stuff. It's just, just folks, yeah. just, just check it out. Just, just go over to whatever Amazon or Spotify, whatever you do. Give it a spin. Give it a buy. Definitely worth it. And Tony's voice, as you know, uh, for the last thirty-five years, is just spot on. One of the best voices in rock. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Tony, you. absolute an absolute pleasure, and uh, well, God, uh, let, let's let's work on getting you up to Canada for a couple of solo dates here. It's uh, shouldn't be too hard to do to throw you into Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, and a bunch of other places because we haven't seen uh, nearly enough of you. I agree, and I've been wanting to come up and play for a long time. So maybe when we hop off the phone, we'll talk about that. Yes, sir. And uh, with that, let me let me hang up on this and stay on the line. And uh, Tony, a great pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Mitch. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you again soon. And uh, folks, we're just we're back with Tony. I, I hung up the phone just a little too quick. He, he had a couple more things he just wanted to add. Uh, Tony, I, I know I cut you off probably not uh, very nicely. So so I do apologize <laughs> for that. And uh, what was the last word you wanted to get in? I just wanted to say that uh, I really am grateful for the incredible support that I've had from my fan base, from the TNT fan base, um, from the you know rock music uh, and hard rock and, and 80s world all, all around. And uh, I'm feeling better than ever. Uh, and uh, hopefully people will listen to this record. For me, I haven't recorded any, put out any recordings for six years. So this is a bit of a vocal songwriting come back i guess you could sort of say a little taste of hey everybody i'm here i'm i'm singing well i'm alive and here's some music for you and um and and let's uh let's continue <laughs> basically with uh you know with my with my life and my career in a positive uplifting way and um although dysphoria doesn't sound very uplifting uh <laughs> it is a great it's, it's it's a beautiful record it really is uh it is. It's a deep album, I think, with some great lyrics, and I think a lot of people will relate to um, to the songs on this album. So that's that's basically it. I just want to say thanks to everybody, and that I'm feeling great and doing great, and look forward to getting out on the road and putting out more music. Yeah, and and see, there there, uh, the next album should be called Euphoria, then to be the exact <laughs> opposite, and then let everybody know that things are good. But uh, again. Uh, thank you for your time today and folks do check out uh, Dysphoria by of course Starbreaker released this January on Frontiers Records available everywhere Uh, again merci beaucoup as we say here in Montreal thank you so much thank you Mitch from the Westwood One Podcast Network (laughs) 